Amen, amen. Well, good morning. Going to have a seat. Let me invite you uh, to get your Bibles out and get your eyes to the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're in Hebrews, and we begin a sermon series in the book of Hebrews this morning. If you don't have a Bible, or we have some of those on the back table in the lobby. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Uh, but all of us should have our eyes on the book of Hebrews. And if you're like, I'm not sure where Hebrews in go, is, go to the back of your Bible. Uh, and if you hit 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, you've gone too far. Uh, but it is towards the back. And this is where we're going to spend the next roughly four months of our time together on Sunday morning is work through uh, this great and just fantastic uh, book. Now, if you'll bear with me, before we get to chapter one this morning, uh, I want to just lay some of the groundwork and give us maybe a little framework, a little structure of the book as a whole, so, so we have an idea of what it is that we're navigating and working through here over the next few months. And whenever you come to a book of the Bible, there's usually a few questions you want to ask uh, to help bring uh, maybe clarity or better understanding with the book as a whole. So first question, who wrote the book? Okay, now who wrote the, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Shake your head saying we don't know. Okay, now you, you might be like, no, I, I know it's this guy, I know. You, you don't know. There, there's, there's plenty of, of, of potential options, but the reality is, is God and his sovereign providence didn't tell us who. It didn't matter. We don't need to know that. Uh, and, and so then the second question is, well, who's the book written to? And again, we don't totally know. You're like, Mike, this overview is not very helpful. All you're telling me is you don't know. Well, that's kind of where we're at. Uh, but he, here's what we do know. We do know that this was written likely to Jewish Christians, uh, many of whom were, were being tempted uh, and persuaded and pressed in a variety of ways to, to abandon the faith, to abandon the gospel, to return to Judaism, things of that nature. And so uh, if you're familiar with Galatians, Hebrews has a very similar sense and feel to it. And then the third question you always want to ask is, what, what, what's the purpose or what's the occasion for writing the book? And here, again, we're, we're speculating. We don't totally know because we don't know the answer to the first two questions. But we, what we believe is that this is actually a recorded sermon. Uh, and, and so imagine if you were to show up at a church and, and someone's preaching and there's some guy in the back just furiously scribbling, scribbling down everything that they were saying and then it got sent out to other churches. That's roughly what we believe is going on in the book of Hebrews. But specific to what we find in the book is this exhortation for the people to continue in the gospel and to continue in Jesus. Because, as I've already mentioned, there's this temptation, this allure, that, this pressure for them to, to abandon the gospel and to return to Judaism, which that pressure actually helps to explain a couple of very prominent things that we see in the book. One, and we're going to see it in spades here in chapter one, is this uh, heavy emphasis on the Old Testament. You're going to see a number of Old Testament references. You're going to see a number of Old Testament themes. Uh, some people joke that Hebrews is the exodus of the New Testament, which is a fair uh, comparison. But a lot of Old Testament emphasis, and that's the author trying to tap into uh, some of the temptation and things that are going on uh, with, with returning to Judaism. But that's held in intention with this other and more prominent theme, or really the most prominent theme of the book. And it's this idea that Jesus is better. That the author wants to communicate unequivocally that Jesus is better. Uh, and that is the overarching driving theme of the book. Here, I'll just give you a brief survey of some of the ways that we're going to see that Jesus is better in the, 
book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. Jesus is a better rest. Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is a better hope. Jesus is a better covenant. Jesus is a better sacrifice. Jesus is a better possession. Jesus is a better country. Jesus is a better life. Any doubt on who's better? Right? Jesus is better. That's what the author is driving at in this. And so as the author keeps coming back, he's better, he's better, he's better, he's better. He's going to five different times, very distinct warnings to the church. In fact, we'll see the first one next week, the beginning of chapter two. There's five warnings. And these warnings function as, as a means of, of, of helping believers, right? These believers who, who this is written to, to understand here's the ramifications and here's the implications of what happens if you abandon the gospel. And so, loved ones, the the book of Hebrews is actually incredibly timely for us. First of all, because it's going to remind us over and over and over again that Jesus is better. Right? All these shiny little things that you and I want to chase and all the trinkets of the world that we want to chase, it's just going to remind us over and over and over again that Jesus is better. But it's also, in in a sobering sense, going to confront us with the reality of what it would be if we were to abandon the gospel. And so here's, here's the tagline for the book of Hebrews. We don't always do this, but we did it with this book uh, because we, we just want you to see this every single week. Here it is. It's really simple. Hold fast. Jesus is better. Hold fast. Right? That's the exhortation of you and I. We're going to hold fast. Why? Well, because Jesus is better. That's why. And he's worth holding fast to. So with that as a broad overview, join me now in Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to jump right in. Here's the main idea of what God's word is going to lead us to here in Hebrews 1 this morning. It's this, that Jesus is God's superior messenger and God's final word to us. Let me say that again, that Jesus is God's superior messenger and he's God's final word to us. What we're going to see is this contrast or this comparison between Jesus and the prophets and then Jesus and the angels. Now, both prophets and angels, they're they're messengers. That was their job, was to deliver the Word of God to the people. And what we're going to realize is that Jesus is just a superior message, and He is the final Word from God to us. Prophets and angels delivered the law. Jesus is going to deliver the gospel. Jesus is not only the superior messenger, He also brings with Him a superior message. So, Hebrews 1, I'm going to read the entirety uh, of the chapter. I'd encourage you to have your eyes on God's Word. In fact, why don't you stand? Let's honor the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 1, loved ones, this is God's Word to us, and it says this, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which any of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And 
You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Loved ones, this is God's word to us and it will stand forever. Amen? Amen. Why don't you take a seat and let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, God, as we want to rest under, remain under, abide in you, and we want to rest and remain and abide in your word, God, we pray that in these coming moments... God, that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear all that uh, the truth of your word has for us. God, that we would be conformed uh, to you uh, by and through your word. God, that your spirit would be doing your work by and through your word. And that we would hear, that we would listen, that we would respond uh, to all that you have for us. And Father, not only us, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. And this morning, God, we're praying for Center City and for Spencer Brown. God, I thank you for that brother and that friend. Uh, Just thank you for that church and God, the good gospel work that they're doing there. We pray that you'd have your hand on them in the same way that we desire that you'd have your hand on us. So God, would you come now and accomplish your purposes in the way that only you can. And we pray this in your name, in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and all God's people said. Amen. All right. Well, the title of the message this morning is Jesus, our superior messenger. Jesus, our superior messenger. And again, not only is he the superior messenger, he's also God's final word to us. And as you look at chapter one of the theme, the overarching theme of what's going on there is the different ways that God is speaking by and to and through and about uh, his son. And that's how we'll break down uh, the the chapter here. Uh, So three things that I want you to see in this chapter. The first is this. Make note of this in verses 1 through the first part of verse 3, that God speaks by his Son. That God speaks by his Son. It says this, long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Right? God speaks by his Son. The first thing that we see right out of the gate in the book of Hebrews is that God is a God who speaks. Now, I only heard one amen, so y'all must be sleeping, or you've become calloused to what is one of the most incredible truths that has ever existed, that God speaks to his people. Think about that, that God chooses to speak to you and I, that he's not mute, that he's not passive, that he's not apathetic, that he's not indifferent, right? God didn't create the universe. He's like, well, good luck. Hope it works out for y'all. No, that he speaks to us. And specifically, the word that God has for his people is the word of Jesus. Now, when you think about that language, God spoke, God spoke, what else in the Bible comes to your mind when you hear that? Think of creation, right? Like, I mean, I I don't know how you can't not think of creation. I mean, when you hear God speaks, it it echoes of creation. And when you think of creation, you think of how God's word is this formative and shaping influence over the lives of humanity, but really over all of creation. I mean, just consider this, that in Genesis, right, in the book of Genesis, that it's God's words, it's the very speech of God that literally forms Adam and Eve and all of creation. 
But it's not just that, right? It's God's word that foretells the future promises of Israel and eventually of the church. It's God's word that liberates the people from their slavery in Egypt. It's God's word that sustains them in the wilderness. It's God's word that leads them into the promised land. See, God is a God who speaks, and when he speaks, things happen. When God speaks, things happen. And so how should we then think about and consider the speech of God, the speaking of God? Just make note of these three things around God being a God who speaks. First of all, God's word is the final word. When God speaks, that's it. It's done. Like when, when God speaks, who overturns that? Who overrules that? Who's like, well, wait a second. None of that. That's nonsense. God's word is the final word. Secondly, God's word is the unified word. Loved ones, think about the Bible for a minute. Think about the Bible here. The Bible, written roughly over 1,500 years, with roughly 40 authors speaking multiple languages. And yet, what does the Bible do? It is telling a singular, unified story. Now, now, listen, you couldn't do this with 39 of your best friends if you tried. You couldn't get everyone together and be like, hey, each of y'all write something, and it's going to be a unified story. You couldn't do that. Right? And, but, and yet the Bible is doing that. Why? Because this is not the words of men. This is the very words of God. Right, you watch a newscast, you can watch three different news, you can watch three different news stations. They can tell you the same story, same event, same place, all speaking the same language, three totally different stories. And yet 1,500 years, people in all kinds of different uh, locations and different languages, different times, and they're telling a singular, unified story. It's because it's the very Word of God that's speaking. And God's Word is a unified Word. Thirdly, make note of this. That God's word is the authoritative word. It's authoritative. Right? God's word is binding on our lives. You know why? Because he's God and you're not. That's why. And so God has the freedom, God has the right, God has the prerogative to tell you whatever he wants to tell you. And you have the right and the prerogative to obey or to suffer the consequences of disobedience. God's word is an authoritative word. So as you think about this, right, you think about, okay, this is, this is the God who speaks, and this is what his word is doing. <clears throat> How then do we respond to that? What does that mean for us? Well, I'll give you three things. We, I could give you 30, but here's just three quick things that because God is a God who speaks, how we're responding to what his word is doing. All right, here's the first. First of all, that we're made confident by God's word. Well, when confidence in life comes through knowing what God has said. The people who are confident, the people that are comfortable, the people, and I'm not talking about like in a physically comfortable, I'm talking about comfortable even though the world is going crazy. Those are the people who have confidence in, in, in the word of God and what God has already told us. Right? This is the one who's firm, that they understand that God's word is final, that it's unified, that it's authoritative. That God's not going to be taken off course. Right? God's not going to come back like, hey, I need to make a few revisions. Didn't see some of this stuff coming down the line. That's not happening. And so those of us who really understand what's going on in the Bible, we're, first of all, we're made confident by God's Word. Let me ask you, how are you in your life allowing God's Word to give you confidence for where God has you? Or is maybe your problem that you have no confidence because you're not letting God's Word lead you? That might be some of your issue. You're like, I don't have any confidence because you're not being led and directed by God's Word. Secondly, here's a second implication of this, that we're compelled by God's Word. At least we should be. 
Right? The very God of the universe is speaking to us. Shouldn't we be compelled by that word? How is it that someone so amazing, so incredible, so, so far above us, and yet we can be so flippant and so casual in listening to what he has to say to us? By the way, when has it ever worked out, either in the Bible or in human history, to ignore what God has said? Like, just think, just think about the Old Testament for a minute. Just think about the Old Testament, just briefly. Most of the Old Testament is the people of God ignoring what God said. And most of the Old Testament, you're like, that looks like a miserable life. That's pretty much what's going on for, for millennia. And it's because they ignored what God has said, right? God's word should be compelling to us. And so this should give us perspective when we think about reading our Bibles and, and, and what is going on when we're reading our Bibles, that it's not some obligation that I have to trudge through. This is an opportunity to meet and to commune and to have fellowship and hear from God himself. We should be compelled by God's word. And then thirdly, there should be some sense of celebration around God's word, some joy, some gratitude, some thankfulness. God didn't have to speak to us. He didn't have to. He chose to. Now, just think about prominent people in our day and age, right? You think about people who are maybe higher ranking in society, famous, wealthy, whatever it is. They don't want to talk to people. Right? Athletes don't want to talk and entertainers don't want to talk. Like, they don't want to talk to people. And yet the God of the universe, the one who rules all things, is happy and willing to speak to us. That's incredible. There should be some celebration going on with us. Right? God is a God who speaks. The question is, are we a people who listen? Are we a people who hear? Are we people who trust his word? Are we following his word? Are we believe in his word? Are we made confident by him? Are we compelled by him? Are we celebrating him as we read his word? God speaks by his son. The first thing we see is that God is a God who speaks. But notice also this in verse 2 and 3, that God's final word is Jesus. Jesus is his final word, <clears throat> right? Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Right? There's a finality to this. There's a conclusion to this. This is, this is the end of the line, the end of the road. Like, this is the last word. And it's the best word that's coming from God through Jesus. Now, now let's just talk about this phrase, last days, for a moment, because uh, that might be confusing to us. Uh, the last days, generically, is the time from when Jesus ascended into heaven until he will return. Um, now, now, when we think about last days, sometimes we tend to think of like, okay, it, it's the very, very end. <clears throat> and sometimes people are like, we're in the last days, which means Jesus has to come back by Thursday or something weird like that, which would be great. I'd be all for that, but that, that probably won't be the case. And so last days, here's what it should do. It should frame urgency within how we live. But we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Um, so, so it might, there's going to come a time where it's like, hey, it's happening this week. But, but it might not be next week. But what it definitely is in reference to is this is the final word. 
And we're told Jesus is the final word. And then it's almost like the author just launches into this short apologetic as to why Jesus is the final word. And he's almost daring the reader, hey, how do you improve on this guy? I dare you. Try to improve on this guy. Notice three things he tells us about Jesus. First of all, he says this, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's saying Jesus is the final word on God's rule. Right? Jesus is the heir. Right? He, he, he's, the, he, he's, he's taken over the throne, but he's also the creator of all things. <clears throat> and so, so you read that and it has a little bit of a Colossians 1 feel to it. Right? Colossians 1 says this, For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. It also has a little bit of a Daniel 7 feel, Son of Man, right? The Son of Man presented to the Ancient of Days. We're just singing about the Ancient of Days. And that Son of Man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Both of those texts speaking to God's final word, Jesus being the final word on God's rule. And, And since Jesus is the final word on God's rule, shouldn't that, shouldn't that change how we think about life? How we respond to difficulties or troubles, how, how we think about current events? It should, right? If Jesus is the final word, that, that should radically alter how we think about things, right? Here's what I mean by that. Because Jesus is the final word, we can be less anxious because we're following the eternal ruler. The, the one who's going to rule on all things at the end, that's our God. Right, so that, that, that should change how I think about what's going on in front of me and how I think about events and, and, and troubles in my life, but also it should give us a greater hope that this eternal king, I'm following this eternal king, the one who rules. Jesus is the final word on God's rule. Secondly, make note of this, look at verse 3, that Jesus is the final word on God's revelation. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Right, he, he's speaking about how Jesus is really the, the revelation of God. Here, here, here he is, God in flesh, making known God's intentions, making known God's purposes. And this is, this is part of the irony of Jesus, right? He, he's both the messenger, but he's also the message in the same container, Right, so like the, the prophets would be like, hey, this guy's coming, he's, he's coming. And, and other prophets are like, he's coming. And Jesus is like, I've got great news, and it's me. Like it's all just wrapped up in one. He's, he's one and the same. And he's the final word on God's revelation. And then thirdly, look at this, look at the middle part of verse 3. I, I find this line to just be striking. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, Jesus is the final word on God's preservation. With his speech, his speech, he's not using his hands, no, no, just with his words coming out of his mouth, he upholds the universe. Okay, um, what can you do with your speech? Like, let's think about this, right? Just think about, like, what can you do with your words? You're like, well, I certainly can't uphold the universe. I I was thinking about this, and I'm like, okay, just words, just words. Maybe over time, maybe over time you could train a dog. Right? You'd like to think that over time your kids will be obedient, but they're little rebellious sinners just like their mom and dad, so they're not always going to be obedient. 
Right, we're, we're pretty limited. Here, let me try to highlight just the insanity of what this text is saying. So Jesus, with his words, upholds the universe with just his word. So I went to the opposite end. I'm not trying to uphold the universe. I've just got a feather. I figure if anything's easy to uphold, it would be a feather. Now, um, anyone think that by their word they could uphold this feather and nothing else? No takers? I was really hoping there'd be a sucker in the room. Okay, well, all right, I guess it falls to me. Feather, you will stay suspended in the air. I am incapable of even holding up a feather by my speech. And you too are incapable of holding up that feather. You're just too cowardly to prove it, right? Here's the point. God upholds the universe by the word of his power. So here's the question. Here's the question. If God upholds the universe with speech, what is it that God can't do? There's nothing. Well, you're like, that's not even hard. There's nothing he can't do. And so here's the implication, church. God is capable of preserving you and I in this world. God is capable of preserving and sustaining you and I in the midst of our struggle and our difficulty. And here, there's a thousand different ways we could run with this. I, I think this one might be the most profound. Here's what this means. It means that God is capable of preserving and sustaining us spiritually before God. Because Jesus is the one who has made us a new creation. Because Jesus is the one who's reconciled us to God the Father. Jesus is the one who's capable of preserving and sustaining us in that place. Praise God for that. God speaks by his Son. Now look at the second half of verse 3 and verse 4. Here's the second thing that we see. It's that God speaks through his Son. So, so now the, the, the shift here moves from comparing Jesus to prophets, and, and now it's going to turn into comparing Jesus to the angels. Um, and again, both of these being messengers. And if you're like, I'm struggling to understand the messenger thing, well, look at Hebrews 2.2. 2. It says, for since the message declared by angels. That was the role of both the angels and the prophets. They were messengers. Jesus is just a better messenger. And it's not that God hasn't spoken through prophets, and it's not that God hasn't spoken through angels, but the better messenger is Jesus, right? So not only does God speak by his son, but he's going to speak through his son. And in verse 3 and 4, there's a two-part message that is being delivered. Here's the first, and it's this. It's God's message of purification. Look at verse 3. After making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, right? So the superior messenger not only delivers the best news, but is also the source of the best news, that he brings purification for sins. This is the gospel right here. This is the good news that you and I all adhere to. This is the only hope that we have, that Jesus, through his atoning work, is going to cleanse us, is going to purify us, is going to wash us of all of our unrighteousness so that we can stand reconciled before God. This is, in summary, the priestly role of Jesus. And it's central to Christ's mission that he would cleanse his people from their sin. In fact, we see this all over the Bible, right? John 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Matthew 1, you're going to call his name Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. 1 John 1, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all our sin, right? And so, so you, you see the message is that Jesus purifies, he cleanses, he washes us from our sin. But there's... 
a gripping illustration here. It's subtle, but it is gripping when we understand it. That's also unfolding at the end of verse 3. Because look at what it says. It says, after making purifications for sins, he did what? What did he do? Tell me. He sat down. Now, when we think of Jesus sitting down, we don't think of that in a priestly sense. What do we think of? What role? Tell me. Kingly, right? Like the king sits on the throne. That's what the king does. And Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. But here, we think of Jesus sitting down. We're like, well, that's kingly. Except contextually, he's not talking about Jesus being the king. Contextually, he's talking about the priestly role, the atonement for sin. And so here, here's, here's the, the, the subtle but gripping illustration. It's this. In the Old Testament, let me ask you this way. How many chairs were there in the temple in the Old Testament for the priest? There were none. Why were there none? They were never going to be able to sit down because it was a, a sacrifice factory going on up in that joint. Because as soon as you'd offer a sacrifice, Billy Bob or Mary or whoever it is out there doing something stupid, sinning again, that's all the priests ever did when they were in the temple were offer sacrifices. Day and night, constantly offering sacrifices. If you were on the clock, you were offering sacrifice. And yet when Jesus sits down, it's a reference to the completion of the sacrifice. In fact, this is what the author of Hebrews will tell us later in Hebrews 10. He says this, When Jesus offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Later in Hebrews 10, it says there's no longer any offering for sin. We don't need it anymore. It's done. In fact, if you want to quote someone, you can quote Jesus on this when he said it's finished. That's what's going on here. It's finished. And this is how God's speaking through his son. What he's saying is, I'm declaring, I'm proclaiming the message of purification from sin. And so you don't have to strive for that. You don't have to hope that you're good enough. You don't have to try to be more righteous. You don't have to be more clean or more put together. It's already finished because Jesus did it once and for all. When he went to the cross on our behalf, loved ones, that's good news. Amen? Amen. Man, praise God for this. God's message of purification. And as awesome as that is, he's not even done. Look at what else. He's like, hey, other part of the message, verse 4, and it's this, God's message of preeminence. So here now we see the angels enter into the conversation. Verse 4, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So this is God's message of preeminence. And there's this comparison between Jesus and the angels. Well, it's not really a comparison. It's not even close to a comparison. Jesus is vastly and immeasurably superior. But you understand what he's trying to do, right? He's trying to make a comparison between Jesus and the angels. Now, here's what you have to understand. In, in, first century, uh, in the first century, there was this deep fascination with the angels. Uh, and the angels were held in high esteem and high regard, lots of honor, uh, because the angels were seen as being messengers of God. Stephen said this right before he got stoned, right, as he's dropping those truth bombs on, on all the Jews there in Acts 7. And, and he says to them uh, that the angels delivered the law. And then he said, which, by the way, you haven't obeyed. And then they lost their mind and they stoned him. But right, the point being, he's saying, no, the angels delivered the law. Uh, And so you start to see, here's why they're honored. Here's why they're respected. Here's why people view them so highly. And yet what the author of Hebrews is doing here in verse 4 is he's saying, hey, these angels that you hold in such high esteem, they are of no comparison whatsoever to Jesus. They're simply inadequate. 
And he does so by talking about the name, right? Uh, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, when we use a name, right, we just use a name to tell each other apart, right? I go by Mark, Mark, Mike and I almost call myself Mark. My Mike. I'm looking, I was looking at Mark Elkin for a second. I'm like, that's too close. I, I don't even know my own name, right? Okay. Uh, Mike or David, right, just to tell us apart, it, it, it distinguishes us. But in the Bible, when you use someone's name, it was a reference to the entirety of their being. So their character, their nature, uh, who they were, were all captured in their name. And so we talk about the name of Jesus. It's not just his name and how we tell him apart from like Ronnie or something. It's his name, it's his character and his nature and his being. In fact, all over the Bible, it speaks to the name of Jesus being superior. Ephesians 1, it says that Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Acts 4, 12, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And probably the ultimate example of this in Philippians 2, when it says God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is what? Above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the point being that Jesus is superior. He's incomparable. He's, he's better. And here's what we have to wrestle with. Do we really believe that Jesus is incomparably better? Do we really believe that? Is that evidenced in our lives? Right, this comparison that's almost laughable here. Now, when you, when you think about comparisons, right, typically when you compare two things, you, you compare them because they're similar, right? Or, or there, there's some level of debate. So here, I'll, I'll give you a few current uh, normative comparisons. I, I don't want your input on what you think is right or wrong. I just want you to hear them, okay? Uh, and so here they are. Here's a few of them. Uh, Jordan or LeBron? Pepsi or Coke? Star Wars or Star Trek? Some of you are already building arguments in your mind right now, aren't you? <laughs> McDonald's or Burger King? A dog or a cat? Right? You can just go on and on and on, which by the way, it's never cats, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> <laughs> See, even the division in the room <laughs> just proves my point, right? So, some of you just, we, we, we'll pray for your sanctification. Anyway, <laughs> they're comparable because they're similar, right? There's some argument to be made. Here's the question. Who do you line up on the other side of Jesus that isn't absolutely laughable? Put on the other side where it's not an absolute joke and what the author of Hebrews is saying is you're trying to do that with the angels and they're a joke they're an absolute joke that doesn't even compare see because Jesus is preeminent he stands alone he's incomparably better and so I, I get these first four verses. That, that there's robust theology unfolding in the midst of this. What do we do with all of this? In some respects, it feels like, man, we haven't even begun to plumb the depths of all that's here. Here's, here's what happens in texts like this. These texts should evoke awe and worship in us. 
See, sometimes, sometimes you open your Bible and the Bible tells us about us, which most of the time it's just telling us that we're sinners and we desperately need Jesus. Sometimes the Bible commands things of us. Do this, don't do this. Live this way, don't live this way. Sometimes the Bible is just telling us explicitly about God. And, and really, I think in those cases, we're left to simply marvel at what's in front of us. I think Hebrews 1 is one of those places where we're just left to marvel at what's in front of us. That we would marvel at the heir, the one who created all things, the one who's the radiance of God, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one who makes purification for sins, and he does so once and for all, the one who's superior to the angels, who's superior to the prophets, who has a more excellent name, and yet that one chooses to speak to you and I. Ooh, that's gripping. That's gripping. Our God is a preeminent God. Our God is a purifying God. And our God is choosing to speak through his son. Here's the final thing. Look at verse 5 through 14. We've seen that God speaks by his son. God speaks through his son. Now God's going to tell us about his son because God speaks about his son. And, and here's what's fascinating. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to treat this entire section and just kind of make a couple of broad conclusions um, while we could spend all kinds of time diving into each of these specific references. We're just going to deal with them in, in some broad stroke fashion. But this final section, there are seven Old Testament citations in the back half of Hebrews chapter 1. And, and I think what the author here is doing, he's doing something brilliant. Remember, we, we haven't seen it yet in the book of Hebrews, although we'll start seeing it next week. But the temptation is to abandon the gospel and return to Judaism. And so what does the author do? He just takes a whole slew of Old Testament texts and basically says, you don't have a Judaism to return to. Because it was never distinct or apart or separated from Jesus. It was always, always, always pointing us toward Jesus. That the Old Testament is simply the pretext for Jesus. And so part of what's going on in Hebrews 1, we're actually given a hermeneutic on how you and I would read the Old Testament. That it's all about Jesus. And if that makes you uncomfortable, you should probably go read Luke 24 because on two different occasions, Jesus tells us the whole Old Testament's about me. And it says both to the guys on the road to Emmaus as well as to the disciples that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It wasn't that they had never been able to understand the Old Testament. It was in that moment what they understood is that the Old Testament was about Jesus. So that's what's going on here. He's blowing up any uh, departure back or any legitimacy to it. So two things, two things here. First of all, we look at verses 5 through 14. God speaks about his son. Here, here's the first thing, that God's word is his word on his son. God's word is his word on his son. That God uses the Bible to tell us about Jesus. Now, most of you are like, duh, we know that. Yet there's something that, that in it, both its simplicity and its ease makes it beautiful and profound in this. Loved ones, this is how God has chosen to speak to us about himself. He gave us his word. That, this is God's call. This is God's choice. And so this is why you and I have to be Bible people. This is why we have to love and treasure and value and read the Bible that we are hearing from God about himself in the manner and the way that God wanted us to hear about himself. God gets to have the final say on, on how he speaks about himself. And what he's given us is his word. Right, remember, we're created in his image. He's not created in our image. We don't get to tell him how it works. He tells us how it works. But here's what happens. 
and, and this is happening all over the landscape in our day and age, is what we do is it's like, yeah, I know the Bible, but then I want to legitimize other ways that God is speaking to me. Now, to be clear, there are other ways that God will speak to us. Okay, I'm not saying that it's only the Bible and nothing else, but any other form and any other fashion by which God speaks to us will always, always, always be consistent with what you find in the Bible, and it will be submitted to what you find in the Bible. And so the, the, the danger for us is when we start looking at some of these other things, really I think what it is, it's a veiled attempt for us to either bypass or to usurp what God has actually put into his word. God's word is the standard. Always, always, always. So, what are ways we do this? Ways we attempt to bypass God's word? I've got four. There's certainly more than four. I think these are the four most pressing for us in our current landscape. And again, these are not inherently wrong in and of themselves, but they are not ultimate, and they are not authoritative. Here's the first. I feel like... I feel like, right, this is the impression, the feeling, uh, the emotion, or the inspiration in a moment. I feel like God's calling me. I'm excited, or I I have this, I'm drawn to. Now, again, it's not inherently wrong, although it doesn't necessarily mean that it's right or true. And the Bible is loaded with warnings about us following our emotions as opposed to following what God has said. But when you think about I feel like, here's the deal. What you say after I feel like better be consistent with what you find in the Bible or you better be able to rebuke your feelings. Otherwise, you're going to end up in a spiritual ditch. This is one of the ways that we attempt to bypass God's word. Secondly, someone said which is very vague and generic. It could be a parent, it could be a sibling, it could be a pastor, it could be an elder, right? It could be some random person on YouTube. Doesn't matter, right? Someone said this. Now, sometimes that's helpful. In fact, a lot of times, one of the values of living in community is you get people giving input into your life. Oftentimes it's helpful. Sometimes it's just an excuse to avoid what God has actually put in his word. So here's the question you have to ask that frames our motive on how we approach this. Am I looking to get clarity and wisdom or am I simply looking for approval? What do I want? Do I want people to just give me approval so I can do this? Or am I actually looking for for, for clarity and wisdom and loved ones? Here's how you know you're getting good counsel. People tell you what's in the Bible or they apply your situation to things in the Bible. But again, the word is the standard, not personal opinion. Number three, my experience my experience, and this may be the most prevalent of all of them in our day and age, it's when my experience, what I see, what I witness, what I'm a part of, that becomes the filter, that becomes the lens by which I view and interpret the scriptures. So instead of the scriptures uh, helping me to understand life, I take my life and I try to make my life help me understand the scriptures. Loved ones, the Bible interprets our life, not the other way around. Your life doesn't interpret the Bible. You're not that special. Right? God is that special. That's why it doesn't work that way. So a couple weeks ago, my cousin, my cousin, his name's Jason. Obviously, I have a son named Jason. I have a cousin named Jason. I've just never met a Jason I don't like. So we used it with, with our son. Okay, but my cousin Jason, who was like a brother to me growing up, um, him and his wife and their two kids uh, were here. In fact, the first service, you hear first service a couple weeks ago, they're sitting in the back with uh, Becky over there. Um, and it's kind of funny. Jason always wants to be used in a sermon illustration. So Jason, if you ever hear this, like, hey man, here it is. Probably not the illustration you wanted. But anyway, um, so they 
they were here, and we had, he's not a believer, uh, and lots of conversations around faith and the gospel and what that entails. But over and over and over again, what it kept coming back to was he wanted to interpret the gospel through his experience and what he'd seen in his life. And I kept saying, man, that, that's not how it works. It, 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 you have to interpret your life through the lens of the gospel. See, what God's word is, you, you and I, we got blurry vision, and God's words are the glasses that you and I put on so that we can see with clarity what's going on around us. My experience, ah, listen, be very careful. You don't impose your experience onto God's word, but you let God's word impose itself on your experience. Here's the final one. Number four, I want to be careful how I frame this. Uh, but number four, I've prayed. Now, to be clear, in no uncertain terms, um, do I want to communicate in any way, shape, or form that praying is bad. Can we all agree on that? Okay, well, we all good on that? Okay, good. Here's the distinction I'm making. That, that there's a major distinction between I am legitimately seeking the direction of God on whatever it is that's going on, and I am submitted to him versus I have decided what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to pray about it just to get the spiritual stamp of approval so I can tell the people around me that I've prayed which is really just a, a, a sick and sinister way of trying to spiritualize our sin, isn't it? But I'm not really submitted to the Lord. I don't really care what God's calling me to. I don't really care what's going on. I'm going to do my own thing, but I'll use a, a, a spiritual form in order to accomplish that. Loved ones, these and so many other things are ways that we attempt to bypass God's word. And yet the reality is we want to be people that are submitted to God's word. That God's word is his word on his son. And this is how God has chosen to talk to us about his son. And so we want to respond accordingly. We want to trust and believe God's word. Here's the second thing. And I'm just going to do this quickly uh, here in verses 5 through 14. But that God's word proclaims Jesus' superiority. And so this entire section is meant to function uh, sort of as like a, a small treaty on the supremacy of Jesus to the angels. Um, and so I'll let you be good Bereans and go back and really tease this out. But there's, there's some categories or some groupings uh, that fall into place here. I'm going to give you four of them. Uh, and I'm not going to make much comment on, the, on them outside of the fact that Jesus is superior and the angels aren't. But he, here's some of the different ways that we see the superiority of Jesus. First of all, verse 5 and 6 that Jesus is the son. Angels aren't the son. Jesus is the son. In fact, the angels are told to worship the son uh, in verse 6. Okay, but Jesus is the son. He's, he's unique and he's superior. Verses 7 through 9, Jesus is the king. Right? It chronicles Jesus' reign as king. The, the angels minister, but Jesus sits on the throne because he's king. Superior. Thirdly, in verses 10 through 12, that Jesus is the creator, speaking of the creative work of Christ, that he laid the foundation of the earth, that Jesus has rights over us because he's creator over us. And then verse 13 and 14, that Jesus sits at the right hand which is really a statement of Jesus' honor and Jesus' deity. It's a reference to Jesus' rightful place as God over our lives. And once again, just another example of his superiority over us. God's word proclaims Jesus' superiority. And I know I've kind of run through some of this 
a little quicker than, than I'd like to and maybe you'd like to. Here's what I want to do, though, is I want to make sure that we can just sit in this for a moment. Because the fullness, not only of verses 5 through 14, but the fullness of this entire chapter is just this robust treaty on the supremacy of Jesus. And what you and I would do well is to sit here and to examine all of these different elements and to just be able to marvel and consider and reflect and ponder and wonder about the excellencies and the glories and the supremacy of Jesus. And so maybe you even need to close your eyes or shut your Bible or whatever it is, but to just sit for a moment and to reflect upon the incomparable, vastly superior one that we serve. And as you do that, let me just close by asking three questions. Question number one, are you listening to Jesus as the superior messenger that he is? Is it the, is it the message of Jesus or is it the variety of messages of this world that have your ear? Number two, are you hearing and believing God's message through Jesus? Are you trusting his atoning work to purify from sin? Are you able to behold his preeminence that gives you confidence in his rule? Do you believe what God's telling you in his word about Jesus? Number three, are you able to worship and marvel at Christ's supremacy over all things? And when's the last time that the awesomeness of God the supremacy of God, the greatness of God has led you to this place. Maybe even silence or awe or worship. Oh, that we would marvel at the supremacy of Jesus. Let's pray.